and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Today, we put Los Angeles in the spotlight with Monocle's man in LA, Chris Lord. Chris, what are the big ticket items front of mind for Angelinos? Well, for any well-versed Angelino, I suppose traffic remains a major concern for anyone who lives in that city. But I want to get beyond that and talk about the first year of Karen Bass's mayorship and touch on one of the big campaign promises when she came to City Hall, which was getting that infamous unhoused homelessness crisis in the city under control, getting more people off the streets. And I want to talk through how she's dealing with that and also in a hotter and drier climate in the city. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. And me, Chris Lord. Well, Chris, thank you for joining me for today's episode. Now, we want to put the focus on LA and some of the big urban challenges facing the city. In your eyes, what do you see are the top issues for Los Angeles? Of all the cities in the world, I think that homelessness and the way that really snowballed over the pandemic and became... It was an issue that LA has faced for many years, but I think during the pandemic, it really not only became a huge thing for people who live there, but also got a lot of attention internationally. It points to some of the questions that I think lots of American cities are grappling with at the moment about affordable housing, but also the kind of essence of its urban design and ultimately what that means for people who are trying to get along in a city that's getting more expensive, more difficult to find a place to put yourself. And as we're going to talk about, that it's endlessly being squeezed in terms of access to things as simple as water, as having a safe route to work. You spoke recently to a reporter in the city covering homelessness, Anna Scott. Let's hear from Anna first about the situation as it stands and how the mayor and the community have been trying to help. It is very hard to overstate the scale of homelessness in Los Angeles. If you have not been here recently, let me try to paint a picture. At this point in time in LA County, there are an estimated more than 75,000 people experiencing homelessness on any given night, which is an extraordinary number, of course, and also a much higher number than we had even just eight years ago when the number was closer to about 44,000. So there's been this huge increase just within the last decade. And it's a very, very visible crisis because unlike some other cities, namely New York City, Los Angeles doesn't have a huge shelter system. So what this looks like is tents along sidewalks, encampments in just about every park you could go to, people camped under freeway overpasses. It's hard to find a neighborhood that's untouched by this crisis. Karen Bass's first year as mayor has resulted in a lot of investment in building out LA's temporary shelter system and a lot of focus on moving people off the streets. Because again, that is the really extraordinary thing about LA's homelessness crisis compared to some other places around the country that also deal with this issue is that there's just an enormous number of people unsheltered in LA on the streets. So Karen Bass came into office making big promises to move tens of thousands of people indoors. She says that she has, in fact, fulfilled those promises, that she has moved more than 20,000 people inside since taking office. However, that includes people who went into temporary shelter for some short period of time and then went back to the streets. Also, mostly that is people who went into temporary shelter, not people who went into permanent housing. And I think sometimes those things get conflated when we talk about these numbers and these promises. And it's a very important distinction. Now, any mayor of Los Angeles or probably any city 
is not going to solve homelessness in a year or really even four years. Um, this is a problem that requires cooperation and is related to policies at the county level, at the state level, and at the federal level. But there has been a ton of focus on this issue and a lot of movement around this issue in Karen Bass's first year in terms of just the focus on getting people off the streets first and foremost. This is you know, the dominant political issue and even community issue, you could say, in Los Angeles. It's just something that touches everybody's lives. It definitely was the main issue in the mayoral race when Karen Bass eventually won. It's something that a lot of people are focused on. And with that, you've seen a lot of new activism popping up. There is a number of mutual aid groups that have formed in Los Angeles in recent years that do street level things like going out and feeding people, even trying to connect them to services and trying to fill in some of the gaps in our overtaxed and very spotty system. And you certainly see a lot of people showing up to public meetings, city council meetings, you know, every time there's something significant related to homelessness on the ballot and a lot of activism around just housing issues and affordable housing in general. And the lack of affordable housing here in LA is really the fundamental root cause of this crisis. So Absolutely. There has been a lot of community level activity on this, in addition to big policy shifts. It's a year since LA elected a new mayor, Karen Bass. How has her mayorship changed the city so far, do you think? So when she came to power, the first thing that she did was declare a state of emergency in Los Angeles. And I remember when that happened, she really came out to the city and said, things are not good. And I think in LA mayoral history. That's quite a bold statement. Typically, mayors come to power there and they come in that kind of feel-good LA spirit. She actually came out and said, there is a major problem here. Now, has she completely changed the situation? The answer is, of course, no. If you drive around LA, you will still see those entrenched encampments, those signs of people, frankly, who've slipped through the net, through the limited net within California of sort of social support and, and welfare and so on, and who have found themselves living on the streets. However, she has, you know, she announced in December last year, 22,000 people took off the streets and you do feel it. I remember when I first moved to L.A. two years ago, the problem was so profound in all those famous places, Venice Beach, Hollywood, downtown L.A., Culver City, all these places that are so entrenched as part of the narrative of L.A.'s cultural exports and everything. And yet you would drive around and you would have beautiful big houses right next to large and entrenched encampments. Now, they have reduced and she has put in certain measures in place that provide for some long term solutions. But there's a long, long way to go, I would say. And just tell me when they use these numbers, because these numbers are often a little bit confusing. So that's taking that number of people off the street, but have as many people suddenly arrived as well because that's the strange thing about los angeles it's warm if you're homeless and in a state that's cold you're drawn to the coast you're drawn to california are the numbers down in total by that amount or is that the number of people do you think that they've actually taken off the street the key thing to understand about the numbers as well is it might be taken off the street but for how long and i think that's what isn't actually revealed by the numbers there does it put people into a kind of halfway house situation of which there are many you know there was a process over the pandemic of turning a lot of old hotels into temporary housing for people and actually, that can slightly muddy the numbers a little bit there. Are these people who've got into homes that they're going to be able to live in for the next three years and get a job and get their foot on the ground? However, while that sounds critical, I do think there is an element here to say that the city has done... I mean, she did a very interesting programme when she came in, which was called Inside Safe, and it was about finding those long-term solutions. And I think what's been impressive is that the thinking behind that hasn't just come down to 
which are very important, but voluntary organisations, charity organisations and so on. It's about actual urbanism changes, so zoning so that you can do certain things like tiny homes, as they get called, which are very small, but make them actually much more habitable. Use spaces that have been forgotten between dwellings, which is one of the things that have been brought in, in her time, allowing architects and so on to create houses in places that basically weren't zoned for that and to do it with an emergency mindset with thinking that there is funding available because we need to do this very quickly but to your point the numbers continue to grow people find themselves moving onto the streets they find themselves in that situation within LA itself and also people from around California and around the US migrating to there because they know that there is also a process of getting people off the streets there so they see some kind of route but I think that despite all that Andrew I do think that those numbers we have to take some strength in those numbers and I know that there are other cities around America that have a homelessness problem believe it or not that are now looking at what Karen Bass has done in the first year and I think really the state of emergency was the one that clinched it how do you create funding and emergency zoning actions very, very quickly to get over a crisis, and that's what she's done. And we have to make clear that this is an issue which is also complicated by the fact that there are strands of people who are homeless who is not only to do with urban poverty, but it's to do with mental health issues, it's to do with drug issues. So we have to make clear it is a very complicated issue, and it's not just about finding beds to put people in. But Mm. contributing to homelessness is the housing crisis in LA and the lack of affordable housing. Now, you recently visited Gluck Plus Architects and spoke to the firm's founder, Peter Gluck. Tell us what you saw. So, by his own admission, Peter Gluck says that he does lots of affordable housing and that this specific thing that I saw, he said, this is unaffordable housing. This was a project that he did in the Hollywood Hills overlooking Los Angeles for his son, who is the acclaimed film director and producer, Will Gluck, who famously did Parents with Benefits. He created a home for him, beautiful as it is, taking cues from the case studies houses of the mid-century. And Peter makes no bones about the fact that this is a very illustrious, beautiful house and that it's an expensive house. However, there are within the way that that house came to be certain principles that he has applied in other places to create large-scale affordable housing projects. Peter Gluck is, you know, is a very tenured architect with a lot of history and a veteran of working with cities to try and address this affordable housing question. And in the case of that amazing house that he has built for his son, what is interesting there is that this was a piece of land that, first of all, everybody said couldn't be built on because it was a slope. And secondly, essentially couldn't be zoned. They couldn't find a way to get over the zoning. They couldn't find a way to build it into the landscape in a way that wasn't going to be an eyesore. They ultimately found that there was so many barriers to it. And he makes a point throughout his career of trying to overcome those boundaries to do affordable housing projects. So in the case of probably one of his most standout projects that he's done is in Aspen, Colorado, where he essentially used a bit of land that lots of people said you couldn't build on and you couldn't do in a way that didn't mar the area by building lots of space for lots of people to live in. And he found certain ways of building into the landscape, building into an existing property, working with the local council to essentially change the zoning rules so that he had more space to build, offer more bang for the book of an affordable housing project. But I think the most important thing that Peter does is that he thinks that there are ways that architects can keep costs down and deliver affordable housing. And that's not even about the design. That's not even about the materials. It's actually about how you think as an architect and what you have at your disposal as a studio. It's like nibbling at the problem. You take a little bite here and a little bite there and a couple of bites over here. You just have to make lots of little savings and little... But in order to do that, 
You have to really understand the process of building. And there's no architects learning that. There's no place for young architects to find out about construction. When young architects ask me what they should do next or what they should do when they get out of school, I, most of the time I'll tell them that what they need to do is go to work for a contractor, spend time on the job, watch how things actually get put together so that you can figure out better ways to put things together, cheaper ways to put things together, more beautiful ways to put things together. But without that impulse, without that contact with the nuts and bolts, the kind of real modern craft of building with modern techniques, that's what's needed. And there's just no place for it to happen. Construction is, is very complicated and is evolving quickly. Architects have absented themselves from the construction process. So they think in simple-minded terms when, in fact, the construction world is pretty sophisticated very sophisticated, and it's become a worldwide marketplace. So architects have to understand construction. They have to understand the way things are built, the kinds of tools and the kinds of mechanisms that are used in today's world. And there is no place for architects to gain that knowledge. They're making the manuals for people to build the buildings that they design, and yet they don't know how things are put together. So their manuals are silly. If you were to make a manual for a a computer program, for example. No one ever looks at a manual for a computer program. You just kind of peck away and figure it out. And that's sort of the way construction has become, which is ridiculous. So I think the thing to say with Peter Gluck is that, you know, from the beginning, he's always had his own contractors in there. He's always had that control of being able to build, which has meant that he can keep those costs down and also still design, still realize his vision of what this should look and feel like. And he went on to tell me a bit about how developers and the public can have a role themselves in combating the housing crisis. I think it's just a market. And if the population wants and needs affordable housing, then they have to um, provide the funds for it. Funny thing happened to us recently that in the past, when you go to the city or the town and ask for um, approval to do a project, if we would say we, we want 50 units here or we want 100 units here, the uh, community would say, no, you can only have 25. So it was a battle over it. And then about three or four years ago, we went to the same process and they said, no, we want more. So instead of beating us down, they realized that on the same site, you've already paid for the land. None of this is brain surgery you're better off making more units. It's going to cost less per unit, and therefore more people are going to have a place to live. It's pretty straightforward. The fear around building is very strange. I think it's that people don't like change, and it's happening quickly. So I think we're going to have more conflict over these issues. Now, moving on to the issue on all Angelino's lips, traffic. Now, before I get your thoughts, Chris, we spoke recently to James Sanders, who's the author of Renewing the Dream, which looks at the changing state of transportation in LA to get a temperature read on traffic in the city and how it got there. LA is in a state of transition right now. Automobile use continues to be the primary form of transportation in the city, as it has been for 60 years or more. The traffic on the freeways continues to worsen. There was a slight dip, very slight, during the pandemic, but it almost immediately came back to pre-pandemic levels and has remained there or increased. The problem being, of course, that there's no way to build new freeways. Environmental considerations and other considerations simply forbid 
construction of new freeways. So new traffic insofar as it comes on in the form of vehicular traffic has to sit and exist on the existing freeway system whose inadequacies have been evident for about 30 or 40 years. Los Angeles has gone through several important phases. People think of it as the quintessential city of freeways and tract houses. And that's not untrue. After World War II, it became the model, really, and created the model, you might say, of the modern freeway and suburban development system. But it had a whole pre-life before 1945. It was already a huge city by the time of World War II. Before 1945, it was developed without freeways with boulevards, and on those boulevards traveled streetcars, an immense streetcar system, the largest in the world, in fact. Two systems, the yellow car and the red car, yellow car being more an urban downtown-based system, but the red car going to the extent of the modern metropolitan region, all the way out north and south and east. And that incredible system sort of led to the development of the Los Angeles that in many ways that we knew, on top of which was built this enormous freeway system in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and on. And that, in turn, is now being not exactly replaced, but supplemented by newer forms of movement that have been sort of superimposed on that. So there have been really, in a way, three phases of its growth. The transportation system is evolving, and in the book that we recently published with Rizzoli that we created with the architecture from Woods Bagot, we explore a number of ways in which transportation is evolving in Los Angeles in all kinds of ways, so that you have everything from micro-mobility, which means e-bikes and e-scooters, which is the way a lot of people are getting around in places like Santa Monica, for example, for their short trips, no longer taking a car, to, of course, the rise of services like Uber and Lyft, which use cars, but which, among other things, don't require parking. So that has an enormous kind of corollary impact on the shape of Los Angeles and land use in Los Angeles. And of course, the metro system has continued to evolve. It's moving toward further growth toward the 2028 Olympics. The metro system isn't under the direct leadership of Mayor Bass. It's a really kind of a state and county and city combination, but it is expanding rapidly and becoming really the largest rapid transit growth in a North American city since New York finished building its subway system more or less around the time of World War II. Well, Chris, what an extraordinary history of traffic Mm -hmm. in the city and the notion they had the largest streetcar system in the world. Now, these are always complicated things to resolve in any city. And you have a A city when I've been there with you, when we've travelled around, the expanse of the city, the dependency on the car, even when they've put in public transport, I guess there seems to be a division between the haves and the have-nots who will use it. What's your take on what's happening and what needs to happen? So I think you're right, Andrew, that you can't separate LA from the car. And this is one of the things that I've learned over these two years. I think that, of course, there is a car culture there, but I think that culture has become so inextricable from the city now. And I think that for all the building of public transport, for all these amazing lines that as we speak, there are multiple lines connecting Beverly Hills to UCLA coming online in the next year, ahead of the Olympics in 2028, it's a huge rollout. But I think that there is a fundamental culture that cannot be necessarily completely unpicked. And I think LA is has accepted that. I think it's accepted that the highways and freeways that we just heard about are always going to be part of that experience of moving through the city. But I think at the same time, what what is also happening there is two things. I think first, there's a sense of 
crisis getting worse. And not to sound too negative, but I think that you know in the last 2023, an 8% rise in fatalities on the road. You've seen more and more people experiencing extraordinary delays. I mean, I just remember in the last 12 months when the 10 freeway closed down. I mean, it, it was almost like scenes from Escape from LA, you know, sort of <laughs> people, you know, completely snarled up on the city. The city had a sense of crime. There was helicopters in the sky and it's only one freeway that's come to a close. So all these arteries are getting clogged up. More people moving to LA in the last few years and sort of into LA County, especially into the downtown and experiencing this kind of backlog, if you like, of urbanism that should have gone on over years. I think the history of public transport there is an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, the great legend or the great story that's told about the demise of the streetcar in LA was that it's often said that the company that bought a lot of these streetcars had so many interests from the automobile industry, from people who really wanted to kind of turn that city into the great experiment of the automobile. And therefore, if you like, kind of the streetcars were weeded out. And I think that there is a structure there that could be revived. But I, what I'm very interested in, I think, that's happening there, as well as this kind of growth of public transport, and to that point about the dangers of the streets there, you talk to people, and just to give you one example, there's this group called Crosswalk Collective, who are a group of kind of worried citizens, who are taking it upon themselves to paint crosswalks all over the city. So to try and create some sense of a city where the car isn't quite the dominant king that it is now, where there are more spaces for the public to cross. Now, of course, it's illegal what they're doing. They're doing it on the cover of darkness. They're concerned citizens. What I think it shows you is that within that city that is so dominated by a car culture, there are more and more voices who are saying there needs to be some not only other options, but also the car brought to heel a little bit, if you will, like not completely running the way that the city grows and develops. I always think in a city like London, you can have a medley of ways of going about. You know, I Sometimes I walk to work, sometimes I cycle, sometimes I have to admit I do drive. I go on public transport. I use every method of public transport. But when you meet people who live in Los Angeles, they tend to be a car person. I know you tried bicycle. You've, you've gone, you've gone <laughs> I never a... thought I'd be a car person, Andrew, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I've become a car person, yeah. Because of security, because of late nights, distances travelled. In the end, a car is still a, a key attribute in the city. We started this conversation in this programme about talking about homelessness and some of the challenges that the city has had. Not necessarily a consequence of that, but as part of that, lots of people feel that the streets are not as safe as they were. They don't feel, if you like, they can go to the local metro station, of which there are more and more of them growing all the time. Then this is what comes back to that car culture. There is an idea that that's just not what you do in L.A., But I do believe that that is changing. And in fact, in the two years that I've been based in the city, and I take those metros actually quite frequently, certainly to get from Santa Monica to downtown, a route that if you go by car at nine in the morning or at five in the afternoon can take you as long as two hours or an hour and a half. If you jump on the metro that's been developed, you can be there in 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And I think more and more that word is getting out. And they are, people are getting out and using these in increasing numbers. But I think that there is still... There is an entrenched idea about what is the experience like of getting on these trains? How secure am I going to feel? And again, this comes back to, I think, to Karen Bass and communicating that to people who live there. But, you know, you don't unpick a car culture in 15 years. There is a process, I think, of trying to add some of that medley of ways of getting around that you're talking about. But it's not as simple as just a few cycle lanes and more metro lanes. The last big issue I want to discuss is the effect of climate change on the city, namely water use and extreme heat. On the topic of extreme heat, we learnt about something called the luxury effect in a report that was published late last year. And we got its author, Dion Casera, 
to explain what that means. The luxury effect, or a luxury effect, was first proposed in 2003 in a study done in Phoenix, Arizona, and it described the phenomenon of identifying higher plant diversity in areas of the city with higher income. And the luxury effect has been identified since then in cities all over the world and for different attributes of urban ecosystems, including for cooler temperatures in wealthier parts of the city, higher animal biodiversity in wealthier parts of the city, as well as higher plant biomass in wealthier parts of the city. In Los Angeles, the luxury effect plays out by the fact that wealthier parts of the city are also parts of the city that have cooler temperatures and higher plant biomass than less wealthy parts of the city. In Los Angeles, race and income are also highly correlated. And so minority areas of the city are also those which have higher temperatures and which have lower plant biomass than white areas of the city. City councils can certainly work to decrease the inequity in the luxury effect. And this is desirable because the luxury effect in showing this inequity on temperature and greenness based on income, also the services provided by greenness in cities and also cooler temperatures in cities are inequitably distributed based on income or race. City councils can try to mitigate this by increasing greenness in low-income parts of cities or high minority areas of cities. However, it's important to consider that doing so may lead to so-called eco-gentrification, driving out people that live in those parts of the cities and not helping the people that the greenness initiatives are meant to help in the first place. So it's important to consider that you want to help the people that have low greenness and high temperatures in cities, but if you green the areas too much, then you might not be helping them at all. Well, water use is also a big problem. Chris, what's the situation here? So at the moment, LA imports about 60% of all the water it uses. Bear in mind, this is a city fringed by the Pacific Ocean. Colorado River is increasingly drawn upon to provide water for the city and other sources as well. And in December, the LA County Board of Supervisors, which kind of administers the city, they came up with this first ever proper water use plan, which will allow the city to essentially source 80% of its water locally. But beyond all that, Andrew, I think just before I came back to London, there was the most incredible storms in LA. So we had a week of relentless driving rain where the place didn't really look like Los Angeles anymore. The streets were flooded. The palm trees didn't know what had hit them. And of that water that fell onto the city, only 20% of it was conserved for use down the line. Now, bear in mind that the city has gone through one of the worst droughts in its history prior to the wet weather that we've seen in the last year or so. There's going to come a point when that drought returns, because what happens currently is there are the huge storm channels, which if you think of the film Grease, where there's the famous race car scene where they, they race through one of the storm channels in Los Angeles. What happens is the water lands on the city, it runs into the storm channels and gets flushed out to the Pacific Ocean. That simply is just not sustainable in a period where the rains have returned and the city will, <laughs> you know, with a dry year, will return to a state of drought. So there needs to be, uh, there is a wake-up happening here. What I think is actually happening is, you know, it's partly about building more reservoirs and getting more citizens to capture water and to find ways of bringing that back into the system. And, and that's what essentially the water plan is doing. But I think what is at the crux of this change, I think this recognition that LA is having right now, is that the city has to go from 
if you like, a change from its founding principles, which was basically about, as we heard earlier in the programme, tracked homes and freeways. It has to get away from this idea that everything is there just to provide for the huge real estate options that were there. And that was really what was, in some respects, what shaped so much of the urbanism of LA, because those storm towns were built to get water away as quick as possible from the nice housing estates. Now there needs to be a recognition, and that is what this plan is about, about keeping hold of that water and getting more people to think about what comes out of the tap and not assume it's just plentiful. Well, Chris, amazing to have you on the show today. Safe travels when you do go back to the West Coast. And I know we'll hear more from you about these issues over the coming months too. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. You can subscribe to the show on all good podcast platforms to get new episodes every week. And you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine for regular reports on all things architecture and urbanism. Just visit monocle.com. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and by David Stevens, who also edits the show. I'm Andrew Tuck. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, City Lovers. Mm-hmm.